Um, glad you guys are here tonight. My name is Robert, one of the pastors, and uh, we are wrapping up our time in the letter of James. So we're going to be in James chapter 5 tonight. Um, it, I think it'll be familiar to you in a lot of ways in that chapter 5, it serves as a really good summary of really everything James has talked about to this point. You know, as we've gone chapter to chapter, you've probably figured out uh, that James, he's, he seems all over the place, right? He's, one minute he's talking about the rich versus the poor, and the next minute he's talking about prayer, and the next minute he's talking about what it means to be faithful and to work hard, and, and he's just bouncing everywhere. And chapter 5, and as much as he can, it kind of lands the plane. It, it takes a last shot at all these issues he's spoken about. And it, and it really drives home a concluding point uh, that it ends really abruptly uh, and, and really forcefully because of that, I think. Um, so we're going to be in James chapter 5. Um, before I get to that, before I just pray for us again, I um, just want to give you an update about uh, the Ward family. So um, a couple weeks ago, Sarah Joy, my daughter, she's five months old now, she... Um, she we, we had, we've been having some issues with her breathing since she was born, with her feeding since she was born. Uh, she's had one surgery in December, if you remember. We were gone for half that month while she was getting what's a, a particular kind of jaw surgery where they basically extend your jaw. And they pulled her jaw out a good two centimeters uh, and really gave her like a, a new face. Uh, and she was able to breathe better and uh, we saw a lot of improvement, um, but as babies tend to do, they grow and they change and they develop inside and out, and, uh, and Sarah Joy did all those things. And so um, it just in the course of needing to just follow up, make sure things were going the way we wanted, she uh, had a sleep study done two or three weeks ago that was, was awful. So in a sleep study, they put all these probes and electrodes on you, and they want to see how you're breathing when you sleep. Uh, if you're an adult with like a CPAP machine at night, for example, you've probably done this before um, if you stop breathing in the middle of the night. Uh, so they did this for Sarah Joy, and it was bad. I mean, really bad. And they wanted to, to get us back up in Atlanta and figure out what in the world uh, to do to help her to breathe. Um, they, they admitted us into the hospital, uh, not because of anything necessarily to do right then, but because they, it's just too hard to coordinate with six different doctors over the course of months and months and months when what you need is an answer this week or next, right? So they had us admitted. We, we went through that process. We did this jaw surgery again uh, after another sleep study, which revealed that, yeah, like 14, 15 times over the night, she stops breathing, sometimes up to a minute at a time, right? I mean, that's, that's not ideal. And, and so they wanted to do this second jaw surgery, pull it out another, I want to say centimeter, I think, uh, and so we were really prayer, prayerful, hopeful that that would accomplish what we needed it to. And I know you guys have been praying and, uh, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of different people inside the church and just brothers outside the church at uh, my seminary classes and, and so forth who have just been so eager to pray for us. And so I'm really, uh, Sigourney and I both are really grateful to you for that. Uh, and I want you to know that your, our prayers, your prayers were, were answered. You know, the Lord heard them. And, uh, and so she had a follow-up sleep study done um, I guess last Thursday, and, uh, and the results were great, significantly improved, to the point where they felt like there was nothing further that needed to be done, um, you know, certainly not for now, uh, but that instead we could just go home and take care of things at home and do things like we've been doing. So, um, so yeah, praise God. You know, I mean, like, I'm just really, you know, grateful for you guys and grateful for that news. Sigourney's here somewhere, maybe. She's not going to raise her hand if she's in here anyway. Um, and Sarah Joy's here too tonight, but, uh, but anyway, she still needs a little oxygen to breathe at night when she sleeps, but it is not nearly the amount that she needed before, and uh, we're really pumped too because she's able to get out the CO2 that she needed to, all right? You can force air in, but you really can't pull air out. There's no CO2 vac, right, for babies. So um, that was kind of the main thing, and, and the Lord in his grace granted us that. She's breathing in and out a lot better. Uh, she's crying a lot better. She's making herself known a lot more uh, vocally, and we're grateful for that. So anyway, thanks, y'all. Um, let's get to James chapter 5 then, and, uh, and, and you'll see in some ways how this actually uh, is, is something really relevant to, to our life, my life right now even. I've um, been thinking a lot about these issues. So 
Uh, let me pray for us, and we'll get to it. Uh, Father, we, uh, we're, just, we're glad to be able to gather together to eat chicken, to uh, rest in the middle of a week. Uh, for some of us, it may be really hectic, and it's nice to be with your people, to be in your house, to gather around your word and to study it and feed upon it and grow because of it and be challenged by it and corrected and uh, given joy and hope where so often this world has nothing for us. So pray that you would do that, that as we work through James 5, that you would be faithful to, uh, to us as your children to give us what we need. Uh, we come asking you to, to nourish us, and we know that you will. That's the kind of father you are. So we, uh, we thank you in advance, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, James 5, it, uh, it's kind of broken down into three sections. You could probably break it down a little bit more than that, but we're going to take it one section at a time. And uh, I'll read a little bit, maybe comments along the way, and then there's just a few points I want to highlight uh, as we go. So we'll start with James, one, or James 5, verses 1 through 6. And, uh, and as we go to, just bear in mind the things that James has already said about some of these issues, some of these key words. This should sound familiar to you if you've been here for more than a week, uh, because James is he's hitting some things home. So he says, Come now, you rich, Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. I mean, can we just pause and say that this is not the most uplifting passage in all of Scripture, right? I mean, as you're reading this, you should be feeling a, a, a sense of dread, a sense of uh, terror at, at what, what is happening, what's going on. Um, we should be asking questions as well, right? Who, who are the people who will be the recipients of this misery? Now, who are the ones uh, whose, whose riches will in turn corrode they themselves? I mean, who, who are these people? Who are the rich? Just, I mean, what, what's the line? You know, I mean, these are, these are questions we need to be thinking about. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Verse 4, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Whoa! Whoa. Now, James has talked about the rich already. If you remember in chapter 2, he explains how the, the people he's writing to are showing partiality. They see someone wealthy looking walk in and stop everything. But when the poor brother comes in, they, you know, oh, you sit over here at my feet, you know, shine my shoes, do whatever it is that you want to do in all your property. I'm going to pay attention to the important person in the room whose importance is, I guess, defined by his bank account. Uh, and, and so James has dealt with this before, but here he, uh, he issues a, a really stern warning against the wealthy, against the rich. Uh, and it's, it's striking in part because it, it, it's, it should not only remind us of things that James has said, but it should remind us of things we, we read throughout the Bible, especially the prophets uh, and uh, notably Jesus. Some of this language is pulled directly from the Sermon on the Mount, if, if you uh, recall. So in, in Matthew six nineteen and uh, through 21, if you remember the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying some very similar things about those with wealth. And he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. I mean, that's the same language. You've laid up for yourselves treasures in the last days, where moth and rust destroy. Isn't that what James points out? Your, your, your treasures have been rusted and moth-eaten, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." 
If, if it hadn't been made plain before, uh, James, as he's writing, it, it reads very much as a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. You know, we, we've talked about how Martin Luther had a difficult time with James because it talks about works and, and deeds and the things that we do that would please the Lord and, and faith apart from works is dead. And, and, and Martin Luther couldn't, he, just had, he didn't have a box to put all that in. Um, but, you know, uh, he really probably should have had just as much difficulty with the Sermon on the Mount because there we see Jesus issuing all kind of statements like that. Uh, including, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you, you're not good enough, you're not righteous enough, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. That's a, that's a problematic statement, right? I mean, how righteous do I have to be? What do I need to do? Uh, but James, he's, he's just picking up where his brother left off. Uh, he, he's taken up the, the mantle upon himself, and you see him echoing the same words that Jesus, that Jesus said. And, and so the emphasis here is on perspective, the perspective of the rich and that they, they feel like they can count all the eggs. They can put all the eggs in one basket, the basket of their earthly wealth and riches and possessions. And this will be enough. This is really all that matters to them. And, and then it, not only does James echo Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, he also kind of echoes the, the prophets. So I'm not going to read into it too much. But you know Ezekiel 18 and 22, if you read those chapters in full, you hear this kind of language displayed again and again. And Ezekiel's point there is to say, you know, part of the unrighteousness of God's people and the reason why the day of God's judgment is coming to you is because you have, you have oppressed the poor. You've forsaken the needy and, and instead have used your wealth and used your possessions to benefit yourself and to increase the wealth and possessions that you have. You're like fattened calves in the day of slaughter. That's how Jeremiah and Isaiah describe it. So if you go to Jeremiah 12, 3, um, he, he says this, But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. Isaiah thirty twenty five says something similar. Um, says... Uh, on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. So as James writes these words, he's writing to, and he's writing to people who are very oriented around their wealth. Now, are, are these people Christians or non-Christians? It's hard to really know for certain it's not, it's not a rule necessarily that James, in writing this letter, is expecting only Christians to read this ever. Uh, it, it's very possible that James is writing with a, a sort of indictment on the, the society and the culture that his people are living in. But if that's the case too, then, then here's another aspect to this that I think is really important. Not only is this section here at the beginning of chapter 5 a warning and an indictment against people who are uh, really oriented around their wealth and possessions. But, but be, because of who he's writing to, it, it really serves as, in a, a strange sort of way, an encouragement uh, for, for the believers and, and the righteous people who find themselves oppressed by these rich, wealthy Roman citizens. So James is not just writing a stern warning. He's also writing, in some way, an encouragement to his people, uh, to the people of God, the, the believers, whether they're rich or poor or not, the people who find themselves on the receiving end of this oppression and, and, and on the receiving end of, of really a society that kind of locks them out. Uh, James is writing an encouragement, and his encouragement is that justice is coming. Right? Uh, the prophets were all about this. Their, their whole point was, I know how things look. I know that you may think that the Lord has forgotten about your sin, that the Lord even doesn't see what you're doing, that the Lord doesn't even consider your sin and oppression to be a problem. You know, the prophets again and again say, you, know, you think that you've got the temple and that makes everything okay. But, just a, a heads up, the Lord doesn't give a rip about that. 
The Lord's not concerned about any of these things. And the wealth that you've amassed for yourself, it's really actually, it's not going to protect you on the day of slaughter. Instead, it makes you look like the fattest sheep in the herd. And you know what they do to the fattest sheep on the day of slaughter, right? So, so James is writing a, a warning for the wealthy and, and the unrighteous who are oppressing the people of God and, and really people in general. He's writing this warning just like the prophets would have. But it's also a reminder that God is just, that the Lord sees his people, that he, he, he hears their cry, that, that the Lord will exact his justice, and that a day of wrath is coming. Uh, so it's a sobering reminder of where everything is headed. And I think this is one of the ways that, that we can connect the, the gospel really clearly to, to James, that we can see the gospel in James. Um, you know, as, as we preach and teach through the Word of God, um, we, we always, and I say we, the, the pastors, right? We, when, we, when we preach through a section of Scripture, we, we always want to point back to Jesus, right? We never just want to let some story be a morality tale, uh, a warning with no punch to it, a warning with no substance, you know, if we're, if we're reading in the Old Testament or the New, at the end of the day, we don't want you to say, well, I can be like that and do that and kind of grit my teeth and stand up on my own. That's, that's never the point we want you to get out of anything we say, right? No matter, no matter how poorly we articulate ourselves. But James can be a hard book to, to point to Christ because there's so many of these imperatives. There's so many do this, be this way, don't be this way, don't do that. That, that it's easy to get in this routine and this rhythm of just reading through it and, well, what do I need to do and what's the minimum and how do I get by and I don't know if I can manage to live up to that. But, but James here, he grounds it in, in something actually very oriented around Jesus, which is the day of judgment. And that's not something we like to think about. When we think about Jesus, we, we want to talk about his grace. We want to talk about his love and his kindness and that's not wrong in any way. But if we, if we just focus in on and zero in on those things, those aspects of Christ's person and work, then we run the risk uh, of missing out on, on the, the other side of that coin. Um, to, you know, we, we, we instead, we, we run the risk of, of treating the, this life flippantly. But Jesus is not just coming with love and grace. Right? If you've read Revelation, you know that, uh, that the day of the Lord is coming with very swift justice as well. Right? There will be wrath for the evildoer. Uh, and, and in that way, we're reoriented here, uh, reminded of a much bigger picture which is the, the end of all things. Not just the end chronologically, but the end in the sense of the purpose, the, the culmination of everything. Which is that Jesus is coming again. It's a guarantee. He's coming back. And, and for those who are opposed to him, in this case, those who, who are really, truly idolatrous, worshiping their possessions, worshiping the power and clout that they receive from their their money or, or whatever gives them their power, um, there, there will be wrath for them. And it's important to know that. Uh, and, and James doesn't just stop there, but as we'll see, he also has a word to say for, for the righteous, for the, the people of God who um, maybe even are on the receiving end of this oppression. And, and so if we uh, see if we if we look then to, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> if, we, if we think about this, though, a little bit more deeply, how about that? Um, we, we do need to kind of get to the question, though, of, of what, who, who are we talking about? And who are these rich people? And I, I've said that, you know, they, they're those who maybe put all their, their hope and, and uh, joy in their wealth and possessions. Let's, let's zero in on what that, what that means because James gives us a, a really clear picture of that. Uh, but before we look at what James says, I want to look again, or I want to look at 1 Timothy, rather. Uh, if you look at six, verse, uh, chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, 
um, we, we get another, another take on what it means to own things, to have possessions, to have means, and how to be a faithful steward of those things. Uh, so 1 Timothy chapter 6, 17, 18, 19, Paul tells Timothy this, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They, meaning the, the rich, the wealthy, are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. See that language, storing up treasure? So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. All right, so when we read James, we can't just read it divorced from the rest of the Bible, and, and especially this, this passage in Timothy. So we have to hold these two in tension. So when we read James, it's important that you not read that and go, oh, see, people who are rich, they, they shouldn't be. It's wrong just on the face of it to have wealth, to have possessions, to have means, to have options. That's wrong. That's not what James is saying. We know that that's not what James is saying because Paul here is, is saying something else. Paul here is saying that, that, in fact, you can use your wealth and riches and leverage these things in, in holy, righteous, and just ways. So let's zero in then on what James's problems are with the, the wealthy here. Because his, his, his explanation falls right in line with that. And, and so the problem is not wealth itself, but the problem are the, all the attendant temptations that go with it. Right, we know this. I mean, how often do you hear money's the root of all evil? Right? You know, not, well, okay, A, it's the root of all kinds of evil. So, you know, not the only way. But not only that. Uh, money in and of itself is not, is not the problem, right? It's the things that, that flow from it. And, and so he, James, looks at a few of these reasons why the, the wealthy are worthy of some condemnation here. Uh, and I'll just kind of rattle them off. It's, it's right, you know, it's there in the text, but it seems clear that they see their earthly riches as heavenly treasure, right? He says in verse three, you've laid up treasure for yourself in the last days, uh, well, you know, th this, is, this, is their, this is the thing they value the most. This is what they put all their, their joy and hope in, right? We've, we've said that. But not only that, their greed has led them to really, in fact, withhold from, from others, especially those that they actually owe something to. Um, so, so in this case, it seems that in James's argument here. Uh, it's, it's kind of a rampant problem that you have the wealthy uh, hiring day laborers, people who will go into their fields, do their work for them, and then finagle their way out of ever having to pay them their wages. Which is a bit ironic because these people are wealthy. They have the means to pay. But because of their greed and because of how much their wealth means to them, not just that they hit a certain bar, but that they just keep climbing higher and higher, they're unable to be generous toward others. And not only generous, I mean, he's not even saying you should be generous. He's saying you should give people their due. And they, they won't even do that. So their greed has led them to be withholding from other people. But not only that, right? Their wealth is also a, a means for them of what he calls luxury and self-indulgence. Uh, you've lived on the earth. Notice he says on the earth, right, as opposed to heavenly, being heavenly minded. You've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. It makes me think of, um, well, it makes me think of HGTV. <laughs> uh, my wife and I, when we were in the hospital, we ended up watching really horrible amounts of HGTV because we don't have cable at home and it was on TV and, you know, it's kind of, your options are limited. And uh, so we're watching this, you know, and it's like everything shiplap this and that. And, oh man, did you see that, that thing that they did for them, that paint color? Oh man, it's so nice and those shingles, wow, you know. And, and, but what I'm always so annoyed with, and this is, I guess, the beauty of HGTV and, uh, you know, maybe having a, a remotely redeemed mind is that, you know, you watch this and at some point, right, you, you just kind of go, oh gee, this is, this is really terrible for me, right? And you get to that point when people will walk into a home 
And, uh, and, you know, and they're like, oh, well, you know, we're, okay, well, what are the criteria you're looking for in your house? What do you need? Like, well, you know, we, we really want to limit ourselves to six bedrooms, four and a half baths, and uh, what's your budget? Well, it's probably close to two million. Nothing, nothing extravagant, you know? And you're just like, whoa, what's going on? You know, but, you know, it, like the, the, the level of indulgence and, and, um, just total lack of self-awareness, right? I mean, maybe some of you have $2 million homes. That's fine. Uh, but, you know, with the way these people talk about, you know, well, and, they'll, and they'll walk in, and they'll be like, oh, the colors of those walls, that's, you know, they're mauve, and I hate mauve. I can never live here. Like, man, paint. Yeah, I just, it's so frustrating. And part of what's so frustrating about it is, is just the self-absorption and the the luxury, or, or like House Hunters International, you know, I'm sorry, I'm just gonna, where people are like, oh, we're looking for our third home in Tokyo for those summers when it's just too hot in Rio and we need to get away from it all, you know, it's been a real drag. We're really, really struggling to figure out what to do. And you're just like, man, I think that's kind of what James is getting at, you know, maybe not that exact issue, um, but I think that does kind of hit maybe a little bit closer to, pardon the pun, home for us, uh, be- because we, we can be this way. You know, I mean, like, maybe we don't have $2 million homes. We've never been on some, one of these stupid house shows. We never met Chip and Joanna and, you know, had them do something. I don't know. But, you know, you, hey, we can be lulled into this, right? I mean, we can. I mean, I read this, and it's easy to read this and to say, oh, I know people like that, you know, the jet setters of the world. But there are ways in which we also are jet setters, you know? How often do you go to Starbucks? I mean, right, I'm guilty. How often do you do that without really ever considering the needs of your brothers and sisters in the Lord? Oh, man, right? So there are ways where this should land in our our hearts as well, where we think about not necessarily never enjoying the things that God has given us, but but where we're just unable to kind of look beyond our own belly button and the ways that we can benefit from our bank account. James is saying the judgment day is coming and the Lord is paying attention to where we put our treasure and our wealth. And and if we put all of our hope in our money, well, right, the United States government currency is not legal tender in heaven. And and so what are you going to have to, what do you have? What, What will you show for yourself? They're, they're short-sighted, right? They, they don't see what's coming, which is the day of slaughter. And not only are they condemned for all of this, but, um, but James even, he calls them, he says, you've, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. And I, I don't know if these people have literally murdered. You could probably conceive of a way in which they have withheld money and maybe let their workers starve to death, maybe. I don't know. Uh, but, but nevertheless, what they're doing is, is grave, and it's, it's not insignificant in part because of the way it causes them to treat other people. And, and so I guess the, the question that we need to ask ourselves is, you know, how do our possessions and wealth and the things that we cling to for what we think of as necessities, how, how do these things call, cause us to treat other people? How do we allow them to rule and run our lives in the way that we interact with one another? the compassion that we're, we're able to show one another, right? Our bank accounts can put a ceiling on that if we're not careful. And so we need to, need to be mindful. So he says all this, and, and like I said, uh, it seems like maybe he's not really speaking directly to the, the wealthy oppressors only, but that in a sense he's, he's kind of speaking to those who are on the receiving end of that oppression, right? Uh, and, and so what does he say more directly to those people then? Right, he's just reassured them the day of wrath is coming. The Lord will get his. Uh, so, so now what, what does he say? Because that's not just true for the, for the rich that he's talking to. It's, it's true for, for all of us. Is that the day of judgment is coming. It has implications for everybody. And what are the implications then for, for the righteous? Because as you notice, he ends chapter, he ends verse 6 with, uh, you've condemned and murdered, what? 
What person? The righteous person. Uh, He, the righteous person, does not resist you. And then he leads on to talk about the righteous person. He says in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be, what's the word? Yeah, be patient. Establish your hearts for what is at hand? Coming of the Lord. Do not grumble, verse 9, against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. All right, so if, you, if you've been keeping score, you may have thought, all right, the righteous, we're just going to coast to eternity. There's nothing to worry about. It's those rich. It's the unrighteous people. It's the people oppressing the poor and downtrodden. Those are the ones who have to pay, and those are the ones who have to worry about what the Lord sees them doing. But James, he quickly, he quickly comes back around and says, okay, all right, yeah, no, that's true, but, but, hey, wait a second. There's a way in which you, the people of God, the righteous, are called to live as you wait for that day, right? For, for these people over here, it'll be a day of slaughter. Yes, that day is coming. But for you, what will the coming of the Lord bring? You notice he calls it the coming of the Lord. He mentions that twice, and then in verse 9, he kind of gets to it again. It says, the judge is standing at the door. And then not only that, but four times he tells them how they ought to be or what traits they ought to exhibit. And in particular, he mentions patience. You need to be patient, be patient, be patient, show patience. And we could go even further in verse 11. He says uh, to remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. All right, so hopefully you're picking up a, a theme here. And I think it's an important one because the temptation for these brothers and sisters, the temptation for us, when we're you know, feeling like maybe the justice is not coming as swiftly as we would like, the, the temptation is to be impatient, right? To usher in your own day of wrath, <laughs> uh, which just, you know, spoiler alert, it doesn't quite compare. Um, you know, it might be worth just holding out, let the Lord kind of do his thing. But, okay, that aside, James is saying we need, we need to be patient. This is what we're, we're called to, to exhibit. I mean, have you really thought about the importance of patience in the Christian life? We joke about America's kind of microwave culture, got to have it now, you know, my, my shows aren't available to stream on demand. What's going on? We talk about that. How, how incredible is it that, you know, i got to wait three days for Amazon to ship my stuff, you know. But it's, it's true, the patience in the Christian life. What a virtue to cultivate, right? I mean, wouldn't we all, wouldn't we all do well to cultivate, to seek patience? It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. You know, it's, it's something that should be a part of our lives as believers if we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And, and so James, he reiterates, we should be patient. In part because we're waiting on the coming of the Lord. You know, it, it'd, be, it'd, be really, it'd be really hard to read this, to hear this exhortation, to be patient, be patient, be patient, if you felt like it was just kind of a rote sentiment, something that James is saying just because he doesn't want Christians to stir up trouble in this life and just just let it go. It's not a big deal. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this will not be let go. Right? He's saying the difficulties and hardships and suffering and persecution and oppression you face in this life, these things, they're not going unnoticed. 
The day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord is sure, though. And if the Lord is surely, definitely, 100% coming, then that, that gives us a totally different perspective on our suffering in, in, in this life. It, it makes this life, uh, it makes this life bearable. Right. And for some of you, maybe you've never really thought like that, that this life, maybe you've never, really, you've never really faced situations or circumstances that, that made you think like, man, I don't really, you know, I don't really need to have patience. My life is actually pretty good, right? I mean, Lord, Lord willing, that's the case for, for a lot of us. Um, some of you, you know, you, you've dealt with situations where you wanted resolution right then, you know? Or you wanted to know what was around the corner, what's happening next. You know, as you're waiting for news that you don't really know if you want to receive, you, you're just kind of frantically hoping that maybe, by God's grace, he'll put you in some sort of a coma for a week and then wake you up and whatever was supposed to happen has happened. And you didn't have to, you didn't have to wrestle for you know, a week worrying and wondering and questioning what, what God was up to, what, what's happening in the world. Um, but the Lord never does that, right? He, he, he wants to cultivate patience in us. But here's something that James is, is pointing out, which is that as much as we want to know what's around the corner, as much as we want to see what the resolution is, as much as we want to, to find out what the big plot twist will be, or if there is one, there, there is, in fact, a sure, definite ending and conclusion, a satisfying one at that, to, to everything that, that we see going on in our lives, which is that the Lord will return. And the world hears that, and they, they hear us talk about the coming of the Lord, and in part, because of just some foolishness in Christian circles, it does end up being kind of a circus, right? We end up thinking about graphs and charts and, and timelines and strange preachers, uh, people with very interesting ideas. For example, uh, my wife and I got married on the day the world was supposedly going to end. I remember that being a big deal, and I was, I was, I was a little bit worried, you know. Uh, I mean, that morning, it, it hadn't ended yet, but we got 24. I mean, this could happen, and I mean, the day's not over, you know. Uh, so the world, you know, kind of sees Christians and the way we view the end of, the, maybe a little, like, yeah, this is kind of a pie in the sky sort of stuff, kind of foolish. Um, but, but Christian, right, you, when you think about the coming of the Lord, it should stir up in you such a longing for that day. And we don't like to read Revelation because it's confusing and messy, and I get that, but you really ought to read Revelation at least once or twice a year. I'm, 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 I'm certain of this. You know, not, not because it gives us the, the details, the ins and outs of everything that will go on in a way that we can just readily pick up and understand and comprehend and do something with, but because it tells us the end, the end of the story, right? It, it shows us exactly where things are headed, which is that Jesus is, is coming back. I say that because you know, we can read this and think it's a cop-out for James to say, well, be patient. But what he's grounding that patience in is, is something sure. It's something that will happen. It's not blind hope. It, it, it is a guarantee that the Lord is coming back. He will make all things right. He'll repay injustice, and, and he will restore righteousness to his people. He'll usher them into his kingdom. There will be no more sadness and sorrow and suffering, etc., etc. That day is coming, and, and that should produce in us patience. So he gives this perspective again, right, that the Lord will repay. And, and then he reminds us in verse 11 of this truth about the Lord that he reminds us about Job, and hopefully you're familiar with Job. We don't have time to get into that. Um, but he reminds us that that through that story and, and through our stories of suffering and waiting and longing for the day of the Lord, uh, the Lord, he always shows himself to be compassionate and merciful. I mean, without fail. 
Maybe not in the ways that we expect and hope, but but it's certain. And he gets this language from Exodus 34, 6, I think, where Moses is freaking out because the Lord is kind of threatening to not walk with the Israelites anymore. Like, this is not, you guys are nuts. I can't do this. You guys are crazy. You're walking in sin. I rescue you. You're worshiping cows and stuff. I'm not doing this anymore. And Moses is losing his mind because he knows, like, if the Lord doesn't go with us, we have, we have, no, chance. <laughs> we have no chance. But not only that, God, if and he tells the Lord this, this is his argument. You know, if you don't go with us, the nations will watch us get destroyed. And they will, they will, they will say, well, you know, who's, who's this Lord of theirs who brought them out of Egypt? He brought them out to kill them. That's hilarious. Moses knows this is going to be how the nations perceive his God, and he can't, he can't live in that world. And he reminds God of this, and God says, true. I'll tell you what, I want you to go hide over there. I'm going to, I want to reveal myself to you. I'm going to tell you my name. And so he hides Moses in a rock, and he walks in front of Moses, and as he's walking in front of Moses, the Lord declares his name, you know, and we know from the burning bush story, right, that the Lord's name is something like I am. But, but the Lord, he, he continues, you know, I'm the Lord, I, I am compassionate and merciful, and I'll show mercy to whom I'll show mercy, is what he says. And I'll, I'll show justice to those that I'll show justice to, is the implication as well. And so James, as he is thinking about his people and how they're supposed to, how they're supposed to live in this life and deal with the circumstances of this world, many, most of which are just not always palatable, <laughs> he, remembers the Lord's, he remembers who the Lord is. He remembers the Lord's faithfulness, his compassion, and his mercy, and his sovereign goodness toward his people, the mercy that he shows to whom he wills. And, and, and that causes him to stand up with, with patience and endurance and hope. But he doesn't stop there. He says that the righteous, they're not a beyond scrutiny, that there are certain things we're called to do as we wait, as we, as we put our hope in this compassionate and merciful Lord, he tells us, he tells them to avoid grumbling and infighting. Um, he says in verse 9, don't grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. And then he concludes in verse 12 by saying that, um, that they shouldn't swear either by heaven or hell or any other oath. Just if you've got a yes to give, just say it that way. If you're going to do something... Say you'll do it, and then follow through. Let that be enough. You shouldn't have to qualify what you say. Christians value truth, and so everything a Christian says should be truthful. You shouldn't have to qualify when you're saying something truthful or not, when you're serious or not. Uh, and, and so he has ways that Christians are called to live, and I think it's in particular interesting that he tells them not to make oaths of this kind because of what he's already said to the, to the wealthy just a moment ago where he tells him, you've defrauded, you promised wealth, you said you'd pay, and you didn't. Christian, lest you feel like you are above those that the Lord will judge in his wrath, you need to realize that there are ways that we're actually always, or rather all too similar uh, in our own vices. And so James calls Christians, he calls the righteous to, to walk in a way, yeah, that so that when the Lord and the bridegroom comes, we're not caught with our pants down, but that we're shown to be faithful servants at work when the master returns to the house. And so he, he then wraps up this whole, this whole section with some concluding remarks that, that feel a lot more like what we're used to when we read Paul, for example. You know, just a couple exhortations. Hey, do this while I got you. Make sure that you... You think about this, and you, you hey, give my, give my condolences to so-and-so, uh, you know. Paul kind of has this laundry list, usually, is how he wraps up his letters. And James, it, it feels a similar way, though there are, there are some differences. But if the first third of this chapter has to do with the, the unrighteous oppressor, let's call him, right? 
And the second third has to do with, with the, the righteous person who is maybe in one way or another being oppressed and stumbling through this life, which to some extent we all are. Uh, then this third section here I think is really interesting because he, he then kind of he pans out a little bit and, and he looks at what it looks like to be among the righteous. Uh, well, yeah, to be just that, to be among the righteous, among the people of God. What does it mean to live in light of the coming of Christ, to have that in mind as we live together, as God's people? You know, it's so easy, right, to be individual Christians, to have our own individual walk, our own individual way of doing things and communing with the Lord and, and to forget about one another, to forget about the very significant role that we should be playing in each other's lives. And James doesn't want to let this moment slide by without, without getting down to that. And so he says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. End, right? It's such an abrupt way to end a letter. Paul never ends his letters like this, but James is just like, man, he just drops the mic. He just walks off the stage. He's got nothing more to add. And I think it's really significant the way he ends it then. Right, that last two verses, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. What a powerful warning, a powerful encouragement, a powerful reminder of what we mean to each other. And this is written to Christians. The assumption James is making here is that they're, they're Within our own fellowship, right? We, some of us can, can wander off. Chase one another down. Hunt one another down. Hold one another to the fire. Be accountable to one another. I mean, it's so much wrapped up in this statement. But I love how this is kind of James's concluding, concluding thought because it summarizes so much of what he's getting at, which is you can be doing all these things, you can be thinking in all these ways, you can tame your tongue, you can, you can know the difference between faith and works and how they work together, you can think about all this, you can endure suffering and trial and, and count it all joy. But apart from the brothers, I mean, what, what, are we, what are we doing? What do we have? In fact, really, honestly, truthfully, apart from one another, none of that really is even... Is even possible. I mean, look, let's back up. You look at this, right? This section on prayer, and, and it's one that I, I think we're probably all maybe more familiar with among the things that James says, especially that bit about the, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective and availeth much, right? Uh, James's point is that this should be done within the context of, of the body. You know, within the context of saving one another from sin, from dragging each other back in when we wander off. That's the context of all this, that we're all we're doing this together. It's not just you should pray by yourself if you're sick. You know? I mean, James actually doesn't even tell the person who's sick to pray. Did you notice that? The emphasis is never on that person's prayer. He tells the sick person, gather the elders around you, get them to pray. 
And then he says, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Right? In, in the context, that statement's really about us as we pray for one another, not for the person who seeks the blessing of the prayer, the answer to that prayer. It's, it's James saying we should be so invested in one another, right, that, that as we pray for one another, we see these things come, come to pass because we ourselves are righteously seeking the Lord on behalf of one another. All right, now, there's a little housekeeping we need to do about this and don't have enough time to really get into it, unfortunately. Um, but the beauty is that what I'm about to say is kind of, kind of open-ended, so it kind of it fits. Uh, he says in verse 15, the prayer of faith. Oh, you know what? No. Verse 13, look at that. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. I mean, man. Dude, I mean, this, this whole section is just, it's just challenging. Because you read it and you, you think, okay, so you get to the first thing. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Okay, cool. Yeah, I can do that. I can pray on. Hey, I can do that. I know how to pray. I can pray. All right, fine. <clears throat> Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Now, wait a second. I didn't know this was my life, the musical. What, what are you doing? That's a, little, that's a little off, right? It's a little different. We're just not maybe a singing culture, a singing people. Uh, but it's the Bible Maybe we, should, maybe we should sing a little bit more. Maybe we should exult in the good things that God has done, right? Enough of that. Maybe we should do that together. I mean, James isn't just saying sing in the mirror with your hairbrush. He's saying it like sing. You know, around one another is, is kind of the implication. Anyway, is anyone among you sick, right? Let him call for the elders. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And, and oil, is, there's nothing magical about it. It's just kind of a symbol of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's kind of a biblical tradition that we just kind of see. Verse 15, this is the hardest part. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Uh, that, that is, that's the hard part, isn't it? What do we do with that? I mean, I'm sure we all know people who have been sick, even terminally ill, that we've prayed for and, and, and watched uh, die. You know? I mean, does that negate this truth? This is, this is where the prosperity gospel in particular is so unhelpful. Um, because the prosperity gospel's answer is simply, well, there's not enough faith exerted. You know, it's prayer of faith. This should happen. So, you know, if you prayed and it didn't happen, it wasn't a faithful prayer. Okay, well, you know, thanks Joel and Joyce. I need more than that. You know, I, okay, where do we go from there? Uh, you have no answers. They have no answers. Now, I, I think there's there's some room to kind of work work around and 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 in this passage i don't think there's any clean cut answers necessarily but yeah some 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 thoughts um, you know this shouldn't this passage shouldn't just be a proof text that indicts our faith when things don't go the way we want. It, it also shouldn't serve as an indictment of God when we just know we've prayed faithfully and the Lord just refused to hold up his end of the bargain, right? It, it, it can't be that simple. Um, so, so where do we go? Um, you know, you recall James 1, verses 5 through 8. I know we're running a little bit over if you need to grab your kids, go do it. Um, James 1, 5 through 8, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man. Um, I mean, I, I wrestle with this passage. I mean, over the last few weeks, my wife and I were talking about this passage in a hospital in Atlanta. What I mean, you know, how, how do we pray 
you know, as our daughter is being carted back for a sleep study, the results of which could mean we go home tomorrow or we go home in six months with a child who has a tracheostomy. I mean, what, how, do we, how do we pray? You know, I mean, there's, like, there's, there's no first book of Robert you know, that, that tells me, well, you know, the Lord has promised that if you will ask him, he will give your daughter a good sleep study. So pray in faith. You know, there's, there's nothing like that. You know, I, I can't turn to something to know. You know? Um, but there are things about the Lord that I can know. Right? There are things that he's revealed to us about himself in his word that, that we can know. You know, in particular, and, and we could go all day, right? The Lord works all things for the good of those who love him. Okay, I know that. I'll pray according to that. You know, Lord, work this for my good. So I don't, just please. I know that you will. I'm going to ask you to do it. You've told me, you know, you told me you will, so I'm going to ask. Um, you know, but, but, but when we pray, how confident should we be in something that we're, we're asking the Lord to to do. I think, well, I, I, I don't think, rather, that, that this verse gives us just a clean answer, right? Um, you know, on the, on the one hand, I think we, we read the Bible and we read passages like this, and, and oftentimes we just kind of walk away and conclude, well, the only way I can ever pray is to kind of close it all with a sort of open-ended, if, if it's your will. Right? And we look at Matthew um, 26 where Jesus is in the garden and he, he's praying and sweating blood even and, and says to the Lord, you know, I, I would rather not take this cup, but, but I want to do what you will. And so I will, I'll do this if it's, if it's your plan for me. I'll do this. So we have that example. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of times when we say, that sort of catch-all, if it's your will. Um, it's not because we really want to do God's will. It's because we're just too afraid to kind of admit that we don't really trust God to do anything that we ask. I want to be careful. I, I don't want to step on that, that phrase as though it's this horrible thing to say. We should, be, right, we should be open and reverent toward the Lord and what he will do. Um, but I think a lot of times when we say that, when we say, oh, God, you know, do this ma- you know, major thing, but you know, only if, you know, if it's something that you, that you want to you know, do. Okay, you know. I mean, oftentimes that, that's really not us being faithful to God. Sometimes I think it's us being faithless, you know, and trying to give God an out. Because really we, we kind of want an out for ourselves. You know, I think James, he pushes on that a little bit. He says, okay, yeah, all right, I mean, when you pray, you, you, you pray. You ask the Lord to act, to move, to do something on your behalf or the behalf of someone else. You do that. And pray with faith. You know, here he uses kind of a phrase. I don't know exactly how to, to understand it. He says, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And what, what does he mean by that, you know? The, the prayer of faith. That's just an odd phrase. It's a weird way to put it. I don't, I mean, does he mean any prayer that is prayed with a, a faithful heart? I mean, I, I don't think so. Because I think that kind of gets disproven just by, the, by our lives, Right? I mean, surely there are those of us in here who have prayed in faith, knowing the Lord is capable of doing anything. We've seen our prayers go unanswered or answered in a way we didn't want. Now, I think, I think there's you know, even a possibility that James, as he's writing this, is thinking of something maybe even a little bit more specific. Uh, and and, and you know, I'm not just thinking this. I mean, there are other, like, Bible people who know more, right, who, who kind of think along these lines as well, that, you know, maybe James is talking about something where, where you really, maybe even the Lord in his, in his grace has given you a, an extra ounce of faith above and beyond where you just know, you know what, I got nothing to go on here except that I just, I, I think that this is something that the Lord will do if we ask him. 
And I know that gets a little, <laughs> gets a little dicey, right? Because, you know, apart from the word of God, how can we really know anything that the Lord wants or will do? But all I'm saying is I don't think you can read this text and conclude beyond a shadow of a doubt, okay, well then whatever I pray, if I'm praying faithfully, the Lord is bound to do. Because I, that's just not, that's not been demonstrated in my life. And, and I doubt it's been demonstrated in all of your lives 100% either. Right? And, and I think it's then okay for us to maybe say, well, maybe we don't really understand the nuances of, of everything going on here, not to mention the rest of this verse where he says that the Lord will save the one who is sick. He'll save him. And we know how that word goes. When we think of being saved, normally we're thinking in terms of a more spiritual kind of reality, something that the Lord will do eternally to bring us into his kingdom, into his presence, and we won't be cut off from him in judgment, right? Uh, you know, but at the same time, the word safe, can be, it can be used when it comes to someone facing an illness. I mean, just the, the, the Greek word itself can be used that way, I, I'm saying. So there, there's... There's some room here. Um, he says the Lord will raise him up. I'm, whoa, what does that mean? The resurrection of the dead? That's one possibility. Will he raise him up off of his sick bed? That's, that's another possibility. My point in saying this is, is not to cloud your mind, but, but rather to say you know, that, that this passage may not be as clean cut as we want it to be. And that, that rather, maybe what James is calling us to is, is not some sort of formula for how we get what we want from God. Um, but that rather, James is calling us to, to boldness in prayer. And to boldness in prayer for one another. That we would truly seek the Lord. That we would ask him to do things that we think are really just outside of the bounds of what, what can happen. That we would pray in faith knowing that, that he can do however he wants. And, and even sometimes, sometimes praying in faith that maybe the Lord will do this specific thing. We should pray that. And, and know that we are faulty and frail and fallen. Um, and sometimes can be misguided in the things that we just know God wants for us. The, the point here is, is that the Christian life's not easy. It's not clean cut all the time. It can be messy. So let's seek the Lord together. Right? I mean, this is, this is part of why we need one another. This is, this is part of what James has exhorted us to do and to be for one another is... is the body, living out an ethic of the Christian life that is fully dependent on the Lord and so reoriented around him and his character and his second coming that the values of this world look, um, well, they look outdated. Uh, they, uh, and they look like they're just not going to fit in the kingdom that's coming. So, let me pray for us, and um, I'll stick around. If you have questions, maybe, maybe we all do. I don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll do that. Father, we are grateful for letters like this. We're grateful for the, the beauty and the complexity and the, the thoughtfulness of your word for all the ways that it, it challenges us and and causes us to, to just delve more deeply into who you are, to who you've called us to be, to how we're called to live in this world. I pray that as we go tonight that you would, that you would give us energy and joy and, and eagerness um, to, to live in light of your coming, to live uh, with one another uh, in, in a way where we're not grumbling against one another, where we're, we're not preoccupied with worldliness, uh, but where instead we gather together, where we, we seek you together, where we praise you together when, when you answer our prayers, where we're not too cynical to, to pray and 
and ask for only the things that we know that you would, you would answer, but where we, we seek you boldly, not just on our own behalf, but, but on one another's behalf. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his work. We thank you for who he is, that he's coming again, that he will restore all things as you have designed them to be, that he'll make them even better, that he'll make us into new creations, even as we already are new creations in him. Um, But Lord, until that day comes, help us to keep our gaze set on you and to follow you wholeheartedly and to love and serve one another. In Jesus' name, amen.